Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your creature in the night, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. The podcast is now on Spotify, if that is your listening platform of preference. Since this is episode 51, you know I'm including some aliens. This episode features Alien Takeover, uninspired slashers, and scary illustrations. Now put on these glasses and stay away from the weird skull face people as we traverse some movies together. Number 1, They Live 1988, directed by John Carpenter. A man with no name comes into town. A church is raided by the police. In the church, the man finds sunglasses. When he wears them, he sees that aliens have taken over and plastered subliminal messaging everywhere. The man kills some aliens. He kidnaps a woman named Holly and has her drive him to her house to avoid the cops. He lets his guard down and Holly smacks him out a window. The man meets up with a friend and makes him put on the sunglasses. The two of them meet up with the resistance. Aliens blindside the resistance and kill a bunch of the members. The two men use an alien watch to get into the alien secret headquarters. They learn more about the aliens and head to the top of a broadcast tower. Holly is there and kills the man's friend. Holly is in cahoots with the aliens. The man shoots her, sacrifices himself, and stops the alien signal. Everyone can now see the aliens. The aliens and Holly are the killers. I don't think I'm a John Carpenter fan. I'm sorry, listeners. I know that most of you love the guy, but the only movie I've seen from him that I think is amazing is The Thing. I remember also liking Christine. I wasn't a fan of Halloween, didn't like The Fog at all, and I didn't dig They Live. I'm still going to check out more of his movies in the future, but based on what I've seen so far, I wouldn't call myself a Carpenter fan. Now, I'll be talking about They Live Only moving forward. They Live is boring. 60% of the movie is Roddy Piper walking around with one of the cheesiest, most repetitive scores blaring over the footage. Carpenter struck gold with the Halloween score, but the score he created for They Live took me right out of the movie. Every time the song that goes burr bing, burr 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 started playing, which is about 60% of the score, I found it grating and overbearing. That particular song sounds like a stock example track that would have come with the music making program. There's a fight scene between Roddy Piper and Keith David that goes on for about six minutes. Why is this fight praised? It's out of place, serves no purpose, and is boring. I found the choreography to be ridiculous. Roddy Piper was a wrestler. 
That doesn't mean that you have to put a long, drawn-out wrestling-style fight in your movie. You have these two men who are landing solid hits on each other, yet they are both still able to keep going. And going, and going. I will say that the makeup effects of the beaten faces post-fight look great. I also really love the design of the aliens. Sure, their mouths aren't that articulated, but I really dug the way the aliens looked with their skinless skull faces and bulging eyes. The 1950s style UFOs are a bunch of fun. Design-wise, They Live is great. It's the plot and pacing that hurts the movie. Roddy using the glasses for the first time and killing some aliens is by far the best part of the movie, and since Roddy decides to let everyone around him instantly know that he can see the aliens, it's the shortest part of the movie. I wish there was more time spent with Roddy wearing the glasses before he let the cat out of the bag by insulting an alien woman. Him insulting the alien lady is hilarious though. Another thing I actually like in They Live is Roddy's quips. The movie is famous for the line, I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. You've probably seen that scene even if you've never seen the movie. I love that part. Most of the gore, well, all of the gore in the movie comes from gunshots. The shots are done practically, and the wounds they leave have impact. The scenes where Holly bashes the back of Roddy's head with a wine bottle and pushes him through a two-story window down a hill is amazing. They Live has some great sequences and design, but as a whole, the movie is a drag. I'd recommend checking out the part where Roddy puts on the glasses for the first time up until he's thrown out a window. I don't recommend the whole movie. I'm sorry, Carpenter fans. Maybe I'll like In the Mouth of Madness when I finally get to it. Number 2, Species 1995, directed by Roger Donaldson. An organization called SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, create a female-human-alien hybrid named Syl after receiving a transmission about DNA from aliens. Syl ages quickly, and SETI decides they need to kill their creation with cyanide gas. Syl escapes and molts into what looks like a 20-year-old woman. Seti puts a team together to track her down. Syl wants to procreate. She kills multiple people on her quest. Syl fakes her own death to get Seti off her trail, changes her hair color, then has intercourse with a teacher that was on the special task force team looking for her. She instantly becomes pregnant and the team starts looking for her again. More people die. Syl has her baby, both Syl and her child are killed. Seti and Syl are the killers. Seti put their people in pointless danger. They also created Syl. Syl kills a lot of people in self-defense, but also some others for barely any reason. Syl probably would have been a nice alien if Seti had raised her right. Species is a weird movie. Its effects are jarring. On one hand, you have amazing practical effects for the gore and alien. I was not expecting Species to knock it out of the park gore-wise. As soon as Syl threw a transient, the prestigious sounding way to refer to a train hobo, that attacked her into a wall which caused his body to become all mangled, I knew I was in for a treat when it came to the gore. The gore included a mangled hobo corpse, a lady with her spine protruding out the back while sitting on the toilet, and multiple stabbings with an alien tongue. The best tongue stabbing is when Syl kisses a rapey dude and sends her pointy alien tongue right through the back of his head. Or 
It might be when the rat alien uses theirs to kill a normal rat. Yeah, the movie ends with a rat alien. The practically done alien looks amazing. H.R. Giger designed Syl. Her design is awesome and very Giger. Some of the practical effects include spikes protruding out of her spine, her nipples shooting out tentacles, and her chest opening up and spitting out a baby. If the practical effects work is so great, why doesn't anyone really talk about Species anymore? Even though Species has some truly fantastic practical effects that used animatronics and a suit, it also includes some of the most hideous CGI I've ever seen. Who in their right mind would look at these animated monstrosities and think to themselves, this is fine? Why didn't they have someone in the practical suit they had on hand instead? It's highly likely that if the suit was front and center, it might not have looked all that great, but there is no possible way that the actual suit would look worse than the CGI aliens that made it into the movie. The 3D model is like something you'd see on a young person's first GeoCities website bad. I'd understand if terrible CGI was used for the baby kid aliens since they probably only made the sill suit, but not using the sill suit over the so bad it's depressing CGI sill is sacrilegious. I can look past the bad CGI tentacles and bulging skin effects earlier in the movie, but full-on CGI alien characters is unforgivable when I know it could have been done practically. Back to some positives. Syl has a dream about a train made up of giant skull compartments. It doesn't really serve any purpose in the movie, so the studio said they wouldn't pay for it, which caused H.R. Giger to spend $100,000 of his own money to bring it to life. He also created 20 minutes of aliens banging for the movie, which you can see a very small bit of during some of Sill's nightmares. It looks grotesque and creepy in a good way. Wait a minute. That means they had two alien suits. Come on. H.R. Giger and the team that worked on the practical effects are the real heroes of Species. Without them, all you really have is a movie with a bunch of unlikable human characters and a terrible anticlimactic ending with the CGI alien. Giger had a completely different idea for the ending that had a big showdown at a drive-in where Syl ends up getting her head blown off. That would have been way better than the ending of the movie, which is Michael Madsen shooting a horribly animated Syl into a pit of burning oil, then old ugly animation popping out of the flames for one last hello before being shot with a grenade launcher after Madsen delivers a groan-inducing one-liner that I'm pretty sure was added with additional dialogue recording. What's said does not appear to match his mouth at all. Michael Madsen, Ben Kingsley, Forrest Whitaker, Mark Helgenberger, and Alfred Molina, a bunch of big names and all the acting is bad. There's a part in the movie where Madsen and Helgenberger are in a contained area of a lab with an alien life form expanding at an alarming rate. During this whole silly sequence, everyone's acting is awful. It's like everyone just decided to shout their lines without any emotion and call it a day. Not only is the acting especially bad during that sequence, the sound used for the alien creature is the good old pig squeal. <sighs> I'm so disappointed that I can't even talk about it anymore. For Syl Sounds, an actor named Frank Welker put some mileage on his vocal cords, screeching and screaming, to make some creepy, unique sounds, so kudos to him at least. 
Whenever I think about Alfred Molina, I remember an old video on YouTube called The Laser Collection where Spider-Man says, Oh my God, it's Alfred Molina. Anyone remember that? No? Forrest Whitaker's character is a psychic. It's super lame. He couldn't even sense when the alien was right behind him. His character's name is Dan. I only know his character's name since it's probably said about a hundred times in the movie. I really wish I had a Dan count for y'all. I'm not sure why a psychic was written into the script when everything else is grounded in science. At one point, Dan walks into a train compartment and sees a dead body and giant cocoon. Right after seeing this, he says, Something bad happened here. Gee, Dan, you think? Captain Obvious, more like Captain Pointless. The whole team hunting Sill is incompetent. One of the crack team members, who's supposed to be a loser with the ladies but a smart cookie teacher from Harvard, goes back to his hotel room right after the sex alien supposedly died. Almost everyone on the team is like, nah, sex alien is totes alive. In his room, the teacher finds a beautiful woman just hanging out who's jonesing to bang him, and Big Brain doesn't even bat an eye. That's obviously a sex alien, my dude. Crack team? More like croc team, am I right? Alright, I'll stop doing the more like jokes. For the rest of this section, at least. Species is a movie with a basic plot, awful characters, and even worse CGI that is somewhat redeemed by exquisite design and a handful of jaw-dropping practical effects. If Species was cut down by 20 minutes, I'd easily recommend it. Since it's nearly two hours, I give it a soft recommendation to people that are willing to sift through garbage to gawk at a few neat practical effects sequences and or huge fans of H.R. Giger. Even then, you'd honestly be better off watching a best scenes compilation online. I may check out Species 2 in the future given that it had a theatrical release, but you know I'm going nowhere near 3 and 4, which were sci-fi channel originals. Number 3, Night of the Creeps, directed by Fred Decker. An alien is running away with a container. The container ends up being blown out of a spaceship. Two lovebirds are at a makeout point when they see an object enter Earth's atmosphere. They look for it and the guy finds it. It's the container. A slug jumps out of it into the guy's mouth. The girl is killed by an escaped, axe-wielding mental patient. Around 30 years later, two nerds, JC and Chris, find the slug guy who's been cryogenically frozen and release him. The guy kills a lab assistant, leaves the lab, and slugs burst out of his head outside a sorority. The slugs start taking over the living and the dead. The slugs lay eggs in people's brains. Chris, a girl he's into named Cynthia, and a detective kill a bunch of the slugs. A ton more are found in the basement of Cynthia's sorority house. The detective blows up the house with himself still inside. His burned body then walks to a graveyard. His head explodes and slugs enter the cemetery. Aliens are shown looking for the slugs. An axe-wielding maniac and alien slugs are the killers. I thought I had already seen this movie, but I was thinking of Night of the Comet. Night of the Creeps is a good time, sure Jason Lively isn't great, and makes you absolutely hate the whimpering whiny Chris, and Tom Atkins doesn't have the grit or charisma to play the rough and tumble detective. I haven't liked Tom Atkins in anything I've seen. He's also in The Fog, Creep Show, and Maniac Cop. Everyone else is a delight. 
Dick Miller randomly shows up as an officer who runs an armory. He should have played the main detective. One of my favorite things in Night of the Creeps is the coroner who is always eating at crime scenes while investigating bodies. Nothing puts the rumblies in my tummy quite like a stiff. The movie is littered with practical makeup and effects work. Right off the bat, aliens are introduced running around butt naked on a spaceship. Put some pants on, you little rascals. The aliens are fun and the ship design is great. A big plot point of the movie is the fact that slugs lay eggs in their victim's head, which then causes the head to explode, releasing oodles of slug babies. You know what that means. Lots of practical effects for slugs bursting out of human heads. Now, a bunch of the heads look obviously fake, but I really dug the effects. The axe-wielding maniac comes back as a zombie and looks incredible. I'm assuming that zombie in particular was mostly animatronics. Pet warning, you see a zombie cat and dog. You rarely see zombie pets. I think you'll be more impressed by the designs than disturbed by the dead animals. Not only do the pet zombies look great, the human ones do as well. There's a zombie that Skullface is showing that looks especially well done. The cinematography is solid in Night of the Creeps. There is a lot of interesting shot composition. There are two shots from behind blades, fan blades and lawnmower blades. For the lawnmower, the shot is POV from the bottom of the mower as its blades make contact with the zombie's face. I would have liked to see a little more of the aftermath of that kill, but the shot is still neat even though it cuts away right after the blades make contact. The 50s scenes are in black and white, which is a nice touch. The fonts for the title and opening credits look great. Night of the Creeps is a comedy, and I found it humorous throughout. It's not laugh-out-loud funny by any means, but it's enjoyable when Chris isn't being a whiny loser. It captures a lot of the old 50s alien B-movie charm mixed with a heaping helping of the 80s. You should check out Night of the Creeps. Fun fact, a bunch of the character names are references to famous horror and sci-fi directors. My favorite name was Cynthia Cronenberg. What a name. Number 4, School Spirit, 2019, directed by Mike Gann. Erica, a girl on her way to being the high school valedictorian, ends up in Saturday detention with some hoodlums and a goody two-shoes named Brett. The vice principal that's supposed to be watching them is an alcoholic, so the breakfast club is able to do pretty much whatever. One of the kids brings up a school legend, the school spirit, who's allegedly the murderous spirit of a teacher that had a heart attack after being pranked. Someone dressed as the school's mascot, the Admiral, starts murdering everyone. Erica is kidnapped by the Admiral, who is revealed to be Brett, the son of the teacher who died. He lives in the cellar and has filled a classroom down there with corpses. Erica makes Brett think she likes him back and kills him with his own admiral sword. Brett and a prank are the killers. You see mom's dead body as the head of the corpse class, so the prank is on the list. What happened, Hulu in the Dark? School spirit should have been a layup. You were all alone and ascending towards the basket. All you had to do was put the ball in the circle net thing. That's a metaphor a character in School Spirit named Jason would have loved. He was the jock character. He loved him some basketball and always had one of the orange globes with him. At least before his feet were chopped off. What I meant to say with that sports ball talk is that School Spirit started off crazy strong. 
better than any other Hulu Into the Dark movie. You know what's a hard horror movie genre to screw up? Slasher. For the first kill, well, not the first I guess. I didn't mention that two perverts try to put a camera in the girls locker room above the showers and are dispatched by the admiral during the process. The mastermind behind the shower cam said he was not doing it for pervy reasons. Sure you're not, Mr. Pervert. Anyway, for the first kill of the Breakfast Club members, a paper cutter is used to remove a delinquent's head. The cutter is on a desk and the camera is placed underneath. The killer slams the blade down on the victim's neck multiple times, kudos for it not coming off after the first attempt. The killer then takes a quick break to find a small wastebasket and place it on the floor where the head is going to fall. The killer then continues removing the head until it pops off and falls into the wastebasket. We see all this from a static under the desk shot and it's awesome. All the blood flowing off the desk like a waterfall, the brutality of the blade being pushed down over and over, and the perfect ending with the head dropping into the trash. I hope I emphasized how fantastic that first detention E death is. All the other deaths suck and are uninspired. Wow, Josh, just rip off the band-aid, why don't ya? I had high hopes after the paper cutter decapitation, but after that amazingly crafted kill, school spirit drags on, and the boring, horrible dialogue is only broken up by some lame kills. I mean, the feet being chopped off was okay, but after that you get a boring backstab, an off-screen kill, and an axe to the face. Speaking of the axe to the face, the character on the receiving end sees the killer coming towards them with an axe, and just kinda waits for them to plant it in their forehead. The girl doesn't even try to evade the axe. It's odd. If anything, she pushed her head towards it. An axe to the face can be a cool kill, but it didn't look good in school spirit. There's barely any score. The acting is pretty awful throughout. I'd say the most believable actor is the kid who's killed first. The vice principal also tries. The worst actor of the bunch is Julian Works, who plays Victor. His delivery is off the whole time. He's supposed to be playing this tough bad boy, but he just comes off as a normal dude. That's partly his acting and partly his styling. None of the delinquent's clothing really says delinquent. Maybe I'm just out of touch and don't know what detention kids look like these days. At one point, the kids vape the wacky tobacco and pretend to be high, which doesn't come off as genuine at all. As I said, almost all of the dialogue is awful. Erica tells Jason Beeball, her ex-boyfriend, that she was checking his profile every 11 minutes during the summer. Yeah, that's what kids say. Right after this, Erica and Beeball are about to bang in a science classroom. Since Erica is super baked for 20, she needs to seek out some snacks before the bone sesh. Beeball stays in the classroom and starts humping a lab table. It's something. The Admiral then walks into the classroom, and I'm pretty sure the Admiral was thinking, if she's not going to bang B-Ball, I will. Is Brett a mortician? How are all the bodies he's collected over the years so well-preserved? Whatever. It's been a long ride, Hulu Into the Dark. One more movie to go. School Spirit isn't anything special. For a Hulu Into the Dark movie, it's pretty decent. But for a general slasher, it's terrible. Watch Slaughter High instead. In case you were wondering, 
Erica was in detention for cheating. Wow, so naughty. Number 5, Honeymoon, 2014, directed by Leigh Janiak. For their honeymoon, B and Paul go to B's family's cabin. They run into a guy B knew growing up and his wife, who were both acting strange. B and Paul go back to the cabin. B disappears during the night and Paul finds her naked in the woods. B says she was sleepwalking. B starts forgetting things and doesn't want to bang Paul. Paul thinks something happened with the guy she knew and goes to confront the guy. Paul finds the guy's wife and evidence that the guy might be dead. Paul breaks into the bathroom to see B stabbing her genitals. Paul ties B to the bed and pulls a weird tentacle creature out of her. B explains that some alien thing impregnated her in the woods. B ends up free and knocks out Paul. Paul comes to tied up in a boat on a lake. B attaches an anchor to him and throws him overboard to hide Paul from the aliens. B then meets up with the other wife and they go find the aliens. The alien indoctrinated wives are the killers. Have you ever been watching an older season of Game of Thrones and thought to yourself, Gee, I'd like to see a movie where Jon Snow's wildling Jeff pretends to be Canadian, aborts an alien baby, drowns her husband, and then goes out with Mr. Steal Your Girl Alien? You're in luck. Honeymoon is that movie. That's a way better summary than the gobbledygook I started with. Rose Leslie is that wildling and she plays B in Honeymoon. Leslie does a great job. She's definitely the best part of the movie and her Canadian accent is solid. I'm saying that as an American who didn't know she was supposed to be Canadian until about a third way through the movie. Some people are hypersensitive and can tell Canadian and American accents apart, but as long as Canadians aren't saying a boot or Surrey, I can't really tell the difference. Paul is played by Harry Treadaway and he's alright. Before any of the alien stuff happens, I wanted to destroy both B and Paul. Their whole shtick as the happy, quirky newlyweds is insufferable. I wanted to strangle them both. Speaking of strangling, if I didn't know that this movie was going to end up being about aliens, I would have thought it was your classic serial killer movie, since early on in Honeymoon, Paul says the following after a bang sesh. Paul tells B to rest her womb. Ah, jeez. My bad, listeners. I should have handed out barf bags before saying that. Paul says, verbatim, rest your womb. I think it's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard. It's something only a sadistic, I'll eat your womb after I murder you with a hammer type serial killer would say. I was sure Paul was going to skin bee and put her flesh on the wall next to a bear skin that was already up in the cabin. They weren't even trying for a kid. Not that the phrase would even be remotely okay in that situation. One other thing serial killer McGee does is grab an innocent frog and threaten its life. B doesn't laugh at the thought of Paul murdering the cute little amphibian, which makes Paul question why she doesn't find his joking about killing the poor creature funny. Paul is the worst, and I'm glad that B sent him to the watery depths before he started his career as one of the most heinous serial killers in Canada. Maybe I should remove her from the killer list. The little bits of gore that are shown in Honeymoon look great. It's mostly just blood. You also see some well done bumps on B's legs. 
a practical alien tentacle baby thing makes an appearance and looks good and odd. The makeup effects are fantastic. B and the other wife end up looking all weird and crusty. The only thing I didn't love when it came to the ladies looking all alien infected was the cheesy white contacts. B's eyes looking super dilated earlier in Honeymoon looked much better than the white ring contacts. During the big climax reveal that B is not really B anymore, pointless shots of Happy B from early in the film are cut in. I found that to kind of hurt the tone. We remember Happy B. You don't have to show us those old clips. At one point, B is writing down things about herself to remember. Later on, it's shown that the other wife did the same thing, so of course a shot of B doing it has to be shown again because I'm way too stupid to remember what I saw not that long ago. I hate whenever movies add unnecessary flashback shots like that. One thing I found insane in the movie is Paul's lack of calling the police or a doctor or anybody. The first thing I would have done was get a doctor. He brings up the idea but doesn't push it when he's shot down. Honeymoon is an alright movie that I had a decent time watching, but I don't really recommend it. I wanted more from the movie about an alien impregnated wife. More alien weirdness, less quirky couple weirdness. Number 6, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, 2019, directed by Andre Overdahl. Some kids, Stella, Augie, Roy, and Ramon, find a book that belonged to Sarah Bellows, a woman said to have poisoned kids back in the day. Stories start writing themselves in the book and people start dying. Augie and Roy fall victim to the book. It's discovered that Sarah Bellows didn't poison the kids. The poisoning was really the fault of her terrible family whose company put mercury in the water. Being treated horribly and used as a scapegoat for the deaths caused her to be filled with rage, which made her ghost use the book for murder. Stella calls Sarah out for being the monster her family said she was, which makes Sarah stop. Sarah Bellows is the killer. Oh, and the Vietnam War. Ramon was a draft dodger because his brother died after being drafted. At the end of the movie, after surviving and being traumatized by a horrible monster, Poor Ramon still ends up on his way to Nam. That's probably the scariest part of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark because of how real it is. That's not to say that the other stuff in the movie isn't spooky. The woman missing her toe, pale lady, and jangly man are all pretty scary. I was impressed by how frightening this PG-13 movie is. It's even got body horror like when a bully character is attacked by a scarecrow. The scarecrow shoves a pitchfork through him, which is the genesis for the asshole to turn into a scarecrow himself. There's lots of straw protruding out of all his orifices. Well, luckily we aren't shown all of them during the transformation, and all of it looks pretty good and disturbing. As anyone who has seen the trailer or read the actual stories knows, one character has spiders burst out of her cheek. CGI is used for all the spiders and they look terrible. I don't know why they couldn't get one shot of a real spider coming out of a fake cheek. Just give me one. There's a lot of CGI and scary stories to tell in the dark and most of it is fine. The big exceptions are those spiders and bugs that crawl on Harold the Scarecrow. The bugs on Harold weren't even necessary. If you're going to have bugs or arachnids be a main scare in your horror movie, you have to at least use a couple real ones. 
Practical effects and CGI were used in tandem to create the jangly man and the pale lady, and I think they looked great for the most part. A contortionist named Troy James did a lot of the movements for the jangly man, which look awesome. The jangly man ends up looking more fake than the pale lady during the CGI parts, but that's because he was front and center flailing all over the place. All the pale lady does is creepily walk forward at a snail's rate. I'd say my favorite sequence in the entire movie is definitely the pale lady. Chuck is in a hospital when everything turns red after an alarm is set off. He then sees the pale lady at the end of a hallway. He tries to run away, but finds her blocking every exit. It's such a dread-inducing scene. I will say I've seen people complaining about Chuck not trying to run past the pale lady, and I can see that gripe, but I find him not trying to run past this terrifying monster lady to make sense. He basically ends up frozen in fear. I've been there. I know you hear that your body goes into flight or fight mode, but I think it should be flight, fight, or frozen. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark attempts to be humorous throughout, and it did elicit one true laugh out loud moment from me. I don't want to spoil that laugh though, because I feel the reason why it landed hard was the fact that I wasn't expecting the line of dialogue. I'll be vague and say what made me guffaw had to do with a fruit. Augie is the first of the friend group to die, and he deserved it. Augie's home alone since his mom and her new BF ditched him. He calls his mom since there's nothing to eat in the house, opens the fridge, and finds a stew. He asks his mom about the stew, and she says she has no idea what it is. Augie, how are you going to eat some nasty-ass stew that has materialized from thin air? I've never been starving enough to chow down on a mystery stew that no one claimed to make. Augie doesn't even heat it up. That's not gazpacho. He then blindly starts eating it after his panicked friends tell him not to eat anything. You want to get a creepy dead ghost lady's toe in your mouth? Because eating cold mystery stew without looking after your friends specifically warned you not to eat anything is how you get a creepy dead ghost lady's toe in your mouth. I haven't mentioned yet that the entire thing is set in the 1960s. A lot of the styling and the way the characters talk doesn't really give off a 1960s vibe. Oh, the acting? All the acting is hamtastic and the dialogue is campy and heavy-handed. Yes, Stella does say the terrible line about the book reading you. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is a camp fest, so the dialogue didn't bother me too much. I set my expectations for this movie pretty low after seeing the trailer, which is probably why I liked it quite a bit. If I hyped it to hell and expected it to be filled to the brim with the stories coming to life, I definitely would have been disappointed. A big complaint I've seen about the movie is that it feels like someone found a random generic horror script and shoved a small dose of scary stories to tell in the dark into it to get that brand recognition. And that complaint is 100% valid. Would I prefer a series of shorts instead of an entire movie that loosely connects the story with a generic horror plot? You betcha. I still found Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark to be a solid good time. I recommend checking it out even if you aren't a fan of the book series. One thing that bothered me a lot is the end credits. The credits say something in the vein of based on the work by Alvin Schwartz, 
but doesn't also say based on the art of Stephen Gamel. And that really rubbed me the wrong way. The creature designs are directly pulled from his illustrations. I hope I just missed the part in the credits that gave him his, but I'm pretty sure his name, at the very least, wasn't highlighted. Stories hurt, stories heal, you die in the book, you die for real. Fun side note, I saw this at the Alamo Draft House, which shows fun pre-shows filled with clips loosely relating to the movie you're about to see. The pre-show for this PG-13 movie was littered with boobs. I'm assuming they thought Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark was an R-rated movie because boobs galore. I found that hilarious. Some kids are gonna grow up with a really weird vampire fetish now. Number 7, The Hunt 2019, directed by Craig Zobel. Welp, you know what time it is, folks. It's time for some stupid idiots to try to use violent video games and movies as scapegoats for the reason horrible violence happens in America. I know, I know. Oodles of studies that show zero relation between violent media and actual real-world violence exist. Other countries that don't have nearly as much pointless gun violence also have just as many violent video games and movies. But America the Beautiful would rather blame video games and movies for its problems. Now Blink is the Killer is a happy place, so I'm not going to dive too far into any of this. But I have to call out the media for being the big, dumb, stupid idiots they are. I grew up playing violent video games. Heck, I'd say one of my favorite video games of all time is one of the most violent shooters ever made. It's called Gears of War. It's got gore galore. You know how many innocent people I've personally murdered, listeners? Obviously dozens, because my brain is rotten due to my consumption of violent video games, horror movies, and metal music. The Devil's Media Trinity. Wait, the real number is zero. Those cowards at Universal decided to pull the hunt over Backlash. I find that not only completely disrespectful to general movie-going audiences, but more importantly to everyone that worked to make that film. While we're at it, we better round up all of the copies of the most dangerous game we can find and burn them. Pulling movies is a slippery slope. I don't want horror speakeasies to be a thing, as cool as they sound. Did Universal pull Hobbs and Shaw, a film that has Jason Statham and The Rock killing people with guns? Of course not. Now, it's highly possible that The Hunt wasn't doing well at test screenings, so Universal decided to use the outrage to pull it. I don't believe that myself, since the movie was guaranteed to make a profit. For the time being, I won't be covering Universal movies. I had already seen They Live before this ban was put into effect. That means no Boss Baby 2, Cats, Halloween, or Candyman reboot. Wait, that's it? Universal sucks. Looks like I'll be missing out on Blumhouse stuff too. Rip. That stuff is fun even though it's mostly horrible. Well, if any other Universal movies pop up on the podcast, you listeners can bet 
that I got them from Spoiler Beard, the nefarious seafaring anti-spoiler pirate captain who picked them up while sailing the streams. What a fun callback. If the dinguses at Universal release the hunt theatrically, the ban will be lifted. To end this section, I want to leave you with this. Why the need for so much gruesome graphic violence? Why not let us imagine because a little Because it's so bit? much fun, Jan! Get really? it! Blank is the Killer 51 alien takeover. Uninspired slashers and scary illustrations has left us to go back to its home planet. We'll all miss that lovable, misfit alien episode. If your ears enjoyed what they heard, why not leave a rating on iTunes? That would be rad and sick, dude. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website, which lets it creep into your minds on all your favorite podcast apps. You can listen to Blank is the Killer on Spotify now if that's your prerogative. If you want to contact your boy about anything, shoot an email to blankisthekiller at gmail.com. Episode 52 will be out on August 25th. Ah, oh, damn it, my banana!